Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here today to worship God together. And it's, it's lovely to have folk with us who we've not seen for a little while. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and of the wonders that God has done. And now let us come to God in prayer. We pray together. God, who is love, who cares for each and every one of us, wherever we are, we come to you now in prayer. We take a moment to think of the people sitting next to us in church this morning and to thank you for them. Some have brown eyes, others have blue or green or grey or hazel eyes. Some have curly hair and some have straight hair. Some have lots of hair and others have very little hair. Some are very old. Some are very young, and some are in between. Some know our names, and some don't. But you do, loving God. You know, and you love, every one of us. None of us can see you, loving God. But you have set us in families and communities where we can live and flourish. Sometimes, though, we do not love each other as well as we should. Sometimes we are mean to people who are different from us. Sometimes we only care about people who are like us. And sometimes... We only think about ourselves, our desires, our ambitions, our dreams. But you, loving God, have no favourites and love everyone just the same. And so we are sorry for the ways that we have been selfish or greedy We are sorry for the times we treated people differently because they were not like us. We are sorry for the ways that our love has been less than we wish others would love us. Forgive us and help us to be more like you, loving without limit. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Today's Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verses 7 to 13, and that's on page 202 in the Pew Bibles. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, in the presence of all the people of Israel, Be determined and confident. You are the one who will lead these people to occupy the land that the Lord promised to their ancestors. The Lord himself will lead you and be with you. He will not fail or abandon you, so do not lose courage or be afraid. So Moses wrote down God's law and gave it to the Levitical priests, who were in charge of the Lord's covenant box. And to the leaders of Israel, he commanded them, at the end of every seven years, when the year that debts are cancelled comes round, Read this aloud at the festival of shelters. Read it to the people of Israel when they come to worship the Lord your God at the one place of worship. Call together all the men, women and children and the foreigners who live in your towns so that everyone may hear it and learn to honour the Lord your God and to obey his teachings faithfully. In this way, your descendants who have never heard the law of the Lord your God will hear it. And so they will learn to obey him as long as they live in the land that you are about to occupy across the Jordan. The New Testament reading is taken from the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. And that's page 306 in the Pew Bibles. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Whoever loves, it, whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And God showed his love for us by sending his only Son into the world so that, so that we might have life through him. This is what love is. It is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, by, to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Dear friends, if this is how God loved us, then we should love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in union with us, and his love is made perfect in us. We are sure that we live in union with God, and that he lives in union with us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and tell others that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone declares that Jesus is the Son of God, he lives in union with God and God lives in union with him. And we ourselves know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and those who live in love live in union with God and God lives in union with them. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on judgment day and we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then, love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid because fear has to do with punishment. We love because God first loved us. If we say we love God, but hate our brothers and sisters, 
We are liars. For people cannot love God, whom they have not seen, if they do not love their brothers and sisters, whom they have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this. All who love God must love their brother or sister also. Amen. Today we are back on our exploration of active waiting or life in the meantime. That nebulous and undefined period of time between where we are now and where we hope, God willing, to be at some point in the future. We've already reminded ourselves about this now and not yet theological device related to the kingdom of God as the period between when Jesus ascended and the end of time. But we also recognise that now and not yet is helpful in beginning to think about the challenges and hopefully the creative tension of our life as a community of God's people called to worship and serve in this part of Glasgow in the meantime. It seems that, at least in some measure, this short series is scratching where people are itching. I think it's probably fair to say that of the series we've shared since I've been here, this one has probably elicited the most feedback and very useful feedback that's actually helped further my thinking. I'm learning with and from you. It's not all a one-way street, and that seems a good thing. It's also been interesting that having taken two weeks out for special services, World Leprosy Day and Education Sunday, I have had one or two people saying, "Um, are we going to go back and and finish that series? And that's kind of been pleasing in a perverse way because it means you've had to exercise some patience. You've had to do a little bit of active waiting to see where the active waiting series was going. So there you go. I think probably the best example we have of life in the meantime within the people of God has to be the story of the exodus and the subsequent wilderness sojourn of the embryonic nation of Israel under the leadership of Moses. We've already thought in previous weeks that this idea of 40 years might be a euphemism for a very long time, rather than a literal 40 years. But however long or short it was, the people involved had no idea how long it would be. They just had to get on with life in the meantime. And the short reading we heard this morning from Deuteronomy comes very much towards the end of the life of Moses and not long before the people enter the land of the promise under the new leadership of Joshua. And in just those few short verses, we begin to realise how much has taken place in the meantime between fleeing Egypt and being just about ready at the end of Moses' life to go into the new country. The ragtag group of slaves who left Egypt 
has developed into a well-ordered society, albeit one that is still living a nomadic lifestyle. A complex religious and social infrastructure has been established. We have the Levitical priesthood in the successors of Aaron. And a large swathe of the Pentateuch, as we now have it, is taken up with the record of the framework within which those priests operated in order to ensure the health and well-being of a new nation. Now, it's fair to say that some of those legal frameworks seem very strange and confusing to us. And we need to remember that this was a brand new nation just emerging, very vulnerable nation, where sickness could wipe them out, where war and infighting could destroy them. And so the rules they had were designed to ensure, put quite bluntly, the survival of the nation with plenty of strong, healthy descendants to continue the bloodline. And in that short reading we just heard, some specific religious practices are mentioned. The festival of tabernacles, or sukkot, or booths, as the Good News translates it. A week-long Thanksgiving festival that coincided with harvest. And either this has already been established by this point, or it is instituted here as the nation of Israel is about to move into a state of more settled living, to build cities and to settle down. The seventh year, the Sabbath year, as a time to cancel debt, so we read, has been established. And this should be part of the life of the new nation. It seems to me that for these people, there was a real risk that they would forget where they'd come from and how God had sustained them. And so there was a danger that these festivals could just become excuses to eat and drink too much. That the idea of the Shabbat for the whole of creation would somehow get lost in the business of life. And the central tenets of what defined these people as a nation under God could be forgotten. Why do I think that? Well, in that reading, it says that during the Sabbath year, at the time of the Tabernacle Festival, the whole people was to gather together and hear again the law of the Lord. And by doing this, the timeless truths would be passed on from one generation, <coughs> one generation to the next. People would be reminded what they had inevitably forgotten because nobody's got a perfect memory. They could discover new insights into the old teaching as God spoke afresh to the next generation. Going back every seven years and reading afresh what God had said and thinking what that meant for them. And so now this infrastructure was in place and the children of Israel were ready to begin the next phase of their lives together. I think because we read all that in seven verses in one little bit of Deuteronomy, 
it's very easy to miss just how enormous that has been and how significant that time in the desert, the wilderness, really was for the development of the nation. If you look on a map, it's not that far from Egypt to Israel-Palestine. It would, in theory, have been possible for them to get there quite quickly. But if they'd done that, they wouldn't have been ready. They needed time to learn and to grow, to learn how to govern their nation, to learn how to respond to issues in relation to health or justice, to learn how to elder their worship life, how to relate to each other, and how to relate to other people with whom they would come into contact. I have a sneaky suspicion that there are lessons we can learn from this story, not in terms of finding absolute read-across parallels, but actually in terms of what we do with our own meantime of tabernacling in our own backyard, camping in a church hall. Is this a time to evaluate and explore our own structures and practices so that we can employ our limited resources and energies the most effectively possible in the service of the gospel? Is it a time when we need to reflect on the policies and practices that enable us to grow together as a community in grace and in faith? And is there any mileage in taking time together every so often, if not every seven years, specifically to remind ourselves who we are under the rule of Christ as a Baptist church in this part of Glasgow? And even, is there a sense that we need to be devoting a little more time and energy to getting to know just what the Bible does say? perhaps a more systematic lectionary or syllabus-based approach rather than me going off and thinking what I think might be interesting. This meantime living is not empty waiting. We don't just sort of sit here and wait for this mythical bus to come and carry us off to where we want to go. Rather, we have an opportunity granted by God to learn and grow, review and revise, so that when the day comes that we enter our next phase, whatever that may be, we will be strong and healthy and ready for that adventure. We don't know how long that period will be. It could be a few years. Or we could be like the people of Israel that all of us will live and die before it happens. But in the meantime, we are called to live and grow and worship and serve. And the focus today is specifically about looking inwards and thinking about building meaningful relationships within our community. 
You see, we could put into place the most amazing infrastructure, have really good committees and teams. We could have the best rotors ever and nobody ever needed a swap. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? We could all become world-class biblical scholars or theologians. But not one of those will make us a community of grace on its own. They, on their own, would make us into some kind of incredibly efficient Christian education institution with a bit of worship on the side. Alongside the practical learning and growing and understanding, we also need to learn to love one another more fully. Those beautiful words that we heard from 1 John are often used on weddings and other such occasions. And they speak of the enigma, the puzzle of love. Love that has its origin in God, but is expressed through human relationships. And it's actually quite blunt what it says. If we do not love one another, no matter what we claim... We do not and cannot love God. And I think that's one of the most challenging tasks in this meantime living as we try to learn what this love looks like and to live it out. Now, as I'm saying that, I expect a lot of your brains are whizzing off to 1 Corinthians 13 with a great hymn to love. But that is just too rich, too complicated, and actually too familiar. So there is a risk if we looked at that, we either just skip over it because we think we know it all, or we become disheartened because we fear we can never measure up to all those things that love is meant to be like. You see, I think love actually is a mystery. Not like just a puzzle, which it is, but actually a mystery in a kind of spiritual sense, something that we don't ever quite grasp and yet we glimpse. It is something of God in us and us in relationship to God. The kind of love that is healthy for a community of faith in the meantime is difficult to define But I went back to Holly Whitcomb's little book, Seven Spiritual Gifts for Waiting, and adapted two of her attributes. Now, you have on your chairs this week, because I remembered it this week, the seven. Please take that home with you. Um, I don't want them handed in at the end of the service. You also have a little kind of little card thing, which I will come back to. The two facets I want to look at today, which I think relate to love, are humility and interdependence. In recent weeks, I've been doing quite a lot of playing with etymology. I quite like playing with origins of words. The Latin root of the word humility is hummus, which does not mean chickpeas mashed up with garlic and lemon juice. It's my joke. I don't tell jokes in sermons. Hummus in Latin means earth. And if humility is about anything, it's about being grounded. It means being able to make an accurate appraisal of our own abilities and our characteristics. 
It means valuing each other as equal yet different. It means learning to see and to release the potential in other people rather than seeking glory for ourselves. It means not leaving others to struggle when we have the gifts and skills or time or resources to help them out. And it also means not criticising or being judgmental about other people's endeavours when they've done their best simply because we think we could do better. Perhaps what is surprising about humility is that it comes from and leads to profound love. We remind ourselves often enough that we are called to love our neighbour as we love ourselves, and that means that we must learn to love ourselves. And so humility requires a true and honest assessment of who we are that allows us to value ourselves for who we are, and then a true and honest assessment of others that allows us to value them for who they are. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. We have no place within true humility to criticise other people for who or what they are not. And nor do we have a place to be down on ourselves for what we are not. In her book, Whitcomb says, and I think she's right, that humility leads us to value relationship over achievement. Because we care deeply for and about one another, we are freed from the anxiety to be like somebody else who perhaps we admire. We don't think, you know, I've got to be like so-and-so. We can enjoy relationship with them in our difference. And it also means that we don't feel we have to compare ourselves to Wellington or Lansdowne or Queen's Park or Partick or whoever. We actually enjoy being Hillhead Baptist Church because that's who God has called us to be. So humility, an honest appraisal of ourselves and an honest valuing of ourselves is part of love. There is one part of Whitcomb's scheme that I have chosen to use a different word for. I use interdependence and she uses loss of control. I didn't really like loss of control as as an idea, but interdependence I felt was a more healthy thing. And that's why you get your little picture of some stones that are interdependent. Take away one stone and the arch falls down. Any stone and the arch falls down. Where I think I agree with Whitcomb is the recognition that individualism and independence, when understood as being selfish self-interest, are unhelpful and unhealthy within the framework of a meantime spirituality or a meantime community. Biblical metaphors of the church as a building 
or as a human body help us out here? And I'd like to suggest that the traditional Baptist understanding of a church as a covenanted community of baptised believers is also helpful in expressing interdependence. In the same way that when a couple enter a marriage relationship, they make a covenant together to share life through thick and thin because they recognise that there is something more here than just sharing a house. It is not two individuals living in the same house and sharing certain activities. It's something deeper and more profound. And I think that's what goes on with church membership. It's more than we come to church and we go away again. It is actually a commitment to inter In recent months, we've put a lot of effort into reviewing and extending our pastoral care systems, precisely because we recognise that. We've worked really hard to see how we can best have a system of mutual caring and sharing that allows for people's different personalities, that allows for people's different needs but draws us together in that kind of a bond. If independence is going about my way and thinking about me and what I want, and if dependence is me leaning totally on somebody else and sucking them dry, then interdependence is a complicated middle ground that involves mutuality. I care for you, You care for me, we care for each other. Every now and then somebody does say to me, well, why should I become a formal member of the church? What's it all about? What's the difference? I think interdependence is part of that, this give and take relationship that takes us beyond natural friendships we're honest there are for all of us people in the church we feel more naturally drawn to people it's easier to get on with but the interdependence of membership takes us past I like so and so I'm not so sure about so and so and actually says yeah we're all in this together we are part of that one body and that's partly what the buddy scheme that we've set up is about encouraging people to look out for people who you might not even think about otherwise because they're not in your friendship group. Interdependence is important, but there has to be a note of caution. Because one of the dangers of interdependence is we actually get really comfy together. We love each other, we get on with each other, and we can become very exclusive and insular. And that could just reduce us to some kind of a social club with a holy element. A private members club with hymn singing is what I wrote down. A community of love also has to have open boundaries and it has to look out at the world of which it's part. And that's where we're going to go next week in our last part of this series. 
I'm conscious that in what I've said today, there's some things that sound quite scary. Looking again at our infrastructure, looking to revisit the way we approach worship and Baptist self-understanding, making honest appraisal of ourselves as individuals and as a community, and that horrible C word, commitment, committing more deeply to life together. But as we do all of that, with all it involves, we need to remember that we are never abandoned to do that on our own. Two weeks ago, with our leprosy mission focus, we talked about advocacy, about the God who travels with us. And that's part of what we are learning. Last week, we thought about education, and within that, the God teaches us. And that's part of it, too. In all this journeying together, in the meantime, as we learn from God, we are also kept safe within the embrace of God's love. Let us come together in our praise for others and in our praise for each other. Let us pray. Listening, God... We turn to you with our praise for others and our praise for each other. And we bring to you our cares and concerns. Concerns for our church. Concerns for our world. Concerns for those living in fear. Concerns for those living in conflict. Concerns for those living in despair and concerns for those merely existing without experiencing life in all its fullness that you have given to us. As we bring you these concerns, we pray that we will learn to love one another as you first loved us. Teacher God, we pray that we will learn to listen, to listen to your teaching to listen for your guidance to listen for your wisdom and to listen to one another so that we can share life in all its fullness to listen to each other so that we can learn to love one another as you first taught us by loving us unfailing God we give thanks that you still speak to us even when we are not listening. We give thanks that you still teach us, even when we never learn. We give thanks that you still guide us, even when we prefer to wander aimlessly in the wilderness. And we give thanks that you still pour out your love on us, even when we have stopped loving one another. Patient God, We give thanks for your patience, even when we prefer not to listen. We give thanks for your patience, as you are slow to anger and quick to show mercy. We give thanks for your patience, even when our impatience means that we forget to listen or to love. Teach us to be patient patient and tolerant to one another 
to be patient as we try to understand your purpose for us as individuals and collectively as a gathering of worshippers here in this place and in this community. Loving God, we thank you that you first loved us. That unconditional love which was presence from the beginning before the word became flesh and we are but custodians of that love until the end of time. We remember your command to love one another as you first loved us. And we do so sometimes interdependently, sometimes indifferently, sometimes sincerely, sometimes superficially, sometimes with humility, often inadequately. And though we fail, yet you forgive us through your greatest loving gift of all, the life and death of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.